Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce, and I oversee our religion coverage. I'm here with our senior religion reporter, Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hello again, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Well, abortion, always a hot, hotly disputed, highly divisive topic, is back in the headlines. Several states, including Utah, have passed laws severely restricting abortion in hopes of setting up a showdown in the U.S. Supreme Court, where a new conservative majority would have the chance to strike down the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. But where does the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints officially stand on the issue? And do rank-and-file members really understand where their faith sits on the scale between the pro-life and pro-choice positions? Here to discuss that and other questions surrounding abortion is blogger Angela Clayton, who recently wrote about the issue for By Common Consent. She joins us today from Scottsdale, Arizona. Angela, welcome. Thanks. Nice We're, to be here. Great. Before we delve into the details of your blog post, tell tell us why you decided to write this piece. Uh, this is uh, a lot of the things I write. I do write about issues that affect women, uh, for one. Um, another reason that I wanted to blog about this is just it's in the news. It's something that a lot of folks are talking about in the church, um, and I keep seeing a lot of scope creep. The more um, I'm, I'm in my 50s, just FYI, <laughs> and uh, so I kind of remember as a teenager the Reagan era, and a lot of these same discussions keep coming up um, over my lifetime, and within the church, it just it feels to me like we've gotten to a point where so many, uh, such a high percentage of church members are um, affiliated with the right wing politics that um, we're getting a lot of scope creep from other groups that are in the um, Republican Party. And never before has it been so partisan in this country. I mean, I'm sure every generation says that, but it seems to be true in every generation (laughs) that we're becoming more and more divided. Uh, But this is one issue where, again, I hear a lot of rhetoric from church members um, in the Republican Party who I don't think are giving an accurate view of what the church's actual stance is on abortion. So I wanted to clarify that in my blog post. That was actually going to be my next question. I I think if you asked most members, they would say the church is in the pro-life camp. Are they wrong about that? It's hard to say exactly because, um, because again, I think that the politics on this have gotten so much more extreme in the last uh, 10, 20 years that what used to be more of a central ground, which is where I see the church's policy following, um, has become to the Republican Party more liberal over time. If you read um, the actual church policy in the Handbook of Instructions, you absolutely could be pro-choice and agree with these statements. Uh, They sound very much like things Hillary Clinton said um, and Bill Clinton said back in the 90s. uh, The statements in the handbook are are not at all inconsistent with pro-choice, and they're also not inconsistent with a pro-life stance that is more moderate. So it kind of, they they kind of have it both ways, a little bit like uh, the church can be on immigration. They're definitely not as extreme on immigration as a lot of the other Republican groups that we see in the GOP these days. I guess the reason that you would say they're not strictly or you could say they're not the church is not strictly pro-life is because the church's policy allows exceptions, correct? Exactly. Yes. 
could, could you enumerate what those exceptions are again for our listeners? Absolutely. I mean, I, I should also clarify the church does say that we take uh, that we take the matter very seriously and does encourage um, prayerful consideration. Uh, and it opposes elective abortion. So a strictly pro-choice stance uh, would not oppose elective abortion necessarily, um, and it clarifies elective abortion is for personal or social convenience. Um, it does say that members must not submit to, perform, arrange for, pay for, consent to, or encourage an abortion. Um, the only possible exceptions are when, and then there are three listed. The first is pregnancy resulted from forcible rape or incest. Uh, the second is a competent physician determines that the life or health of the mother is in serious jeopardy. And the third situation is um, that a competent physician determines that the fetus has severe defects that will not allow the baby to survive beyond birth. So, um, it, it does state even these exceptions do not justify abortion automatically, but abortion is a most serious matter should be considered only after a person's uh, only after the persons who are responsible have consulted with their bishops and received divine confirmation through prayer. So um, it's basically saying if you're in one of these three situations, you should consult with your bishop and you should also um, receive divine confirmation through prayer. So how, how is the LDS position different from other Christian faiths on, on this? Well, for example, there are some Christian faiths who are against even birth control. <laughs> so um, yeah. abortion would be seen as an extreme version of birth control or one that's not as responsible of, uh, of a version because conception's actually taken place already. Um, some of the recent abortion laws that are, that are being introduced to challenge Roe v. Wade are not just um, opposing elective abortion, but they are outlawing abortion, including in, um, in cases of rape or incest, uh, regardless of physicians' recommendations, or they are um, greatly restricting when an abortion can take place. Most abortion um, does take place early, but uh, some of the latest bills that were introduced um, are stating abortions after eight weeks are outlawed. So again, eight weeks is a little early sometimes to even know if you're pregnant. Uh, so it does outlaw a lot of abortions. Um, fetus, the fetus is not viable, can't live independently outside of the mother until after 20 weeks. Um, and 92% of abortions are done before 14 weeks, but um, eight weeks is still very early in a pregnancy to know for certain that one is pregnant. Is there something unique about Mormon theology that speaks to this issue differently than, say, Catholic or, or other faiths' way of understanding a, a fetus? I think, uh, I think one difference is that we really don't claim that we know for a fact when the spirit enters the body. Um, and. And there are some other faiths that are a little bit more firm on when they believe or they believe that at conception, you know, that it is inhabited by the Spirit. We have the pre-existence doctrine that other faiths don't have as well. Um, and uh, the other, I, I would say we don't have a firm theology on it, but we do have some scriptural um, scriptural information or scriptural evidence that's unique to us. So um, a couple that I shared in my blog post, uh, one was in Abraham 3, and this is about preexistence of spirits. Again, this is 
unique uh, scripture to the Mormon faith. We learn uh, verse 18 of Abraham 3 says, If there be two spirits, and one shall be more intelligent than the other, yet these two spirits, notwithstanding one is more intelligent than the other, having have no beginning, they existed before, they shall have no end, and they shall exist after, for they are nolem or eternal. So it's saying that the spirit is eternal, it existed forever before, and it exists forever after our mortal existence. And so that is... Um, again, something that we have in our scripture that doesn't exist in others. But what I find um, more instructive, or at least of interest to this type of discussion, is um, when does the spirit enter the body? Brigham Young apparently said that the spirit, he thought, entered the body at the quickening. Um, as a woman who's had three children, I don't necessarily agree with that. Certainly it's alive and it's moving. <laughs> um, I joked in my post, I think somewhere around age two or three, maybe. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> they certainly have more animal-like qualities as toddlers than, than necessarily acting like they're, uh, you know, independent, intelligent beings always. Um, but other religions uh, often have stronger opinions on record than we do. But the Book of Mormon specifically shares um, an example that I think is insightful. In 3 Nephi chapter 1, verse 13, we have um, Samuel the Lamanite praying about when is, when is the Savior going to come into the world. And we used to read this as a family when I was growing up uh, for our Christmas Eve celebration every year. We would read these scriptures. Uh, and it says, Lift up your head and be of good cheer, for behold, the time is at hand, and on this night shall the sign be given, and on the morrow come I into the world, to show unto the world that I will fulfill all that, all that which I have caused to be spoken by the mouth of my holy prophets. So that's Jesus Christ speaking to Samuel the Lamanite, saying, I'm coming into the world tomorrow. Now, I guess theoretically, he could be talking from Mary's womb if his spirit was already inhabiting the body um, or not. You know, it seems to me more likely that the spirit doesn't inhabit the body until somewhere closer to birth or at the time of birth, something like that. Uh, again, this is just one piece of evidence. It's not, it's not affirmed by the church handbook or anything like that. We don't have any official statement that the spirit does not enter the body before then. It's just... Um, one piece of information that I think is of interest to us. It is unique to our scriptures. The third Nephi scripture that you reference, which is in the Book of Mormon, uh, it, uh, that's pointed to a lot, of course, on this subject for obvious reasons that you've enumerated. But it's also sort of murky in that you don't really know how literal that verse is supposed to be interpreted, correct? Sure, yeah. Also, the, uh, again, different than, say, the Catholic Church, the LDS Church doesn't have a firm stand on embryos, you know, for in vitro. These embryos are created and then some discarded, uh, and the LDS Church hasn't really weighed in on that. If That's true. We don't outlaw stem cell research, for example. Um, so, you know, we that's not prohibited as it is in some other, again, conservative faith. What I see, though, is, again, a lot of the the lay membership have made certain assumptions based on their political affiliations because others in their political party express their beliefs very strongly about a pro-life stance that is more forceful than what our actual policy says. 
So in the 1970s through around the year 2000, abortion was regularly mentioned in general conference as a among the most evil things. But in the past decade, it hasn't been discussed much from the pulpit in that, in that pulpit. Have you seen a change in the church's focus on it? And why do you think we're sort of back there? You know, that's a, an interesting question. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure that it's been in the public debate much outside of the church during that time. Um, Obviously, it was a big it was a big staple of the Reagan era in the 80s, um, and then we had President Benson in, who was definitely a staunch conservative, probably even a little more than that. Staunch conservative plus might have been <laughs> his category. Um, it just kind of exited the public debate a little bit. For one reason, I think um, abortions have actually gone gone way down. Um, there aren't as many as there used to be. Uh, in the U.S. at least, um, between 2006 and 2015, they're down about 25%, um, and that's a pretty big drop. So I think that there have been a, a lot of advances um, in in several different areas. One, birth control. There are a lot of different options available for birth control. Things have gotten more reliable than they used to be, um, and maybe there's been an improvement in the information out there in terms of sex education and uh, and in terms of just the accessibility of birth control that prevents the, necess- the necessity in society or, or the demand, I suppose, maybe not necessity. Um, I don't know that I would ever say necessity, <laughs> but the demand for abortion. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's because the, uh, the law has seemed pretty settled? Yeah, I mean, I would say it has um, until this this recent Supreme Court change uh, has kind of emboldened those on the far right. So do you suspect you may hear more from the pulpit in, in high-level meetings like General Conference about abortion, given that, that it may be back on the kind of public radar? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I can't say for sure, but uh, I really do hope not. <laughs> along that line, do you think the church, because we've talked about now some, for some time the nuances in the sort of the church's policy, do you th- think the church should help members more clearly understand what their own church's position is? And if so, how should they do that? Well, I definitely think that there's room for us to be more clear about what our policy is. I know that with immigration, for example, the church has come out and done, uh, you know, they've, they've made clarifying statements in Utah, at least, that I think were, were intended to clarify for some of their conservative church members that, hey, our policy on immigration is not as draconian as some of the things that are happening right now in the country. We don't necessarily agree with these things, um, and we expect you as, you know, disciples of Christ to behave in this other way. So there have been some attempts. I wouldn't say, though, that it's really taken, uh, it's it's not necessarily been a, a big push for them to clarify the distinctions between the church's policy and the Republican Party's 
current party line anyway. I do think recently, um, and I can't remember who the other one was, but I know Mitt Romney specifically came out with a statement um, that, uh, and he sounded very, frankly, Clintonian and centrist in saying this, but he said abortion should be um, rare, safe, and legal. And that is the pro-choice line of centrists. So that is definitely not the current Republican Party line that's uh, that's going on, at least in the Deep South and, and in other places where they're trying to challenge Roe v. Wade. Personally, I don't know that the church will directly come out and say something, but I do think they like to use Mitt Romney or he takes on that role. I can't say whether that he's being directed, but he can persuade people from within both the party and the church without having to make a doctrinal statement. Do you think one reason the church maybe hesitates on this is because it does get wrapped up in partisan politics? Yes, I do. Um, personally, I think that, yeah. Uh, I think that, that there's a lot of hesitation because I would imagine that some of them feel more strongly about this issue than others, and some of them are hesitant to imply that there's ever a good reason for um, for even abortion for these reasons. They don't want to put, they don't want to open the door so much that people are suddenly having a doctor's note for any kind of abortion. Um, I think there's just a great fear that that choice is going to lead to excess. But so far, the um, you go on the church's website, and the church has 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 its position, but it has not weighed into the political debate. It hasn't signed on with any of these groups. It hasn't been a friend of the court. It's That's actually true. It's, it's unlike how it has wandered into the LGBTQ public debate. It hasn't made abortion one of its signature issues. I think that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, it could be that the silence is the answer there. Which, again, opens the door uh, in a positive way to saying, look, we, we, the church, teach correct principles and let people make their decisions. That's very different than, than the political perspective. It, it definitely is. The one thing about the church's policy on abortion that I personally would love to see shift is a little bit in the language of how it's written. I don't, I don't personally disagree with the church's stance. I'm, I'm not in love with the idea of elective abortion either. Um, I am neither a Democrat nor a Republican. I, I am independent, but I'm not of the independent party. I just don't belong to either party. And so technically, I'm more pro-choice, certainly, than I am on the pro-life camp. But um, but I don't love elective abortion, even if I see that it may be necessary in some situations. Uh, I personally haven't been in that situation myself. I've never been without family support. I've never been addicted to drugs or had even some of the situations outlined here. I mean, I just haven't had even family members in these situations. Um, so I, I try not to judge that. We don't have to have church. Our church policy can be what our church policy is, and that's not the same thing as the law of the land. We can behave in a different way than we require others to behave through law. And we don't 
require that everything we believe be codified in American justice law. <laughs> so it doesn't always make sense to me for us to say that our policy is how it has to be for every person on the planet. I think our policies are good for us as disciples of the church, as disciples of Jesus Christ, not necessarily as um, citizens. They, there can be a separation there. But you started to say there's one part of the church's policy you would like to oh. see changed. Yes, thanks for the reminder. <laughs> yeah, the one part I would love to see change, um, it says in here, it's very clearly uh, preferencing the opinion of a competent physician, which I think is good wording, competent physician, because I'm sure there are doctors out there that are not really competent to make these judgment calls. You do get, I think, second opinions are a good idea, that kind of thing, to determine if a woman's life is in jeopardy or if the child's uh, likelihood of survival is is slim. I think that having multiple opinions is good, having a competent physician is good. But then it goes on to say it should be considered only after the persons responsible have consulted with their bishops and received divine confirmation through prayer. And those bishops, I'm not saying don't consult ever with a bishop, but I certainly don't think that your average bishop is an infallible guide for this kind of decision. Um, I also think the term persons responsible might give undue equal weighting to both the husband and the wife, and it really should be the woman who is having the conversation with a competent physician primarily. To me, it is primarily her decision in conjunction with a competent physician and also prayer. I don't, I don't discount the value of divine intervention in, in prayer and, and personal revelation in this kind of matter. But giving uh, the amount of weight that I'm, I'm nervous about here that's given to a bishop's consultation, someone with no training whatsoever who probably has their own personal biases and ignorance, frankly, is a terrible instructor for a lot of bishops out there. I've had plenty of bishops who like to spout off about things they know nothing about. Um, the office gives them a lot of confidence that they haven't necessarily earned through experience or expertise. So bishops, frankly, are a bit of a red herring in here. They just make me nervous. Uh, and then the other thing is that, you know, not that the husband has no say in it whatsoever, but I do think that the woman who is the one who's pregnant needs to have the ultimate say. The, the the bishop's comment you make it also cuts to sort of the lack of maybe knowledge even on bishops' parts of understanding what the church's positions are. Um, I want to ask you a question about the other part you talked about because you know a, a lot of people say that Roe v. Way, Roe, the Roe v. Wade decision is absolutely necessary in women's struggle for equality. That without having control of their own bodies on this fundamental front, they'll forever be held back. What do you say to that? I think that's absolutely true in my opinion. I really do believe that. Um, there's uh, there's another blogger out there. I think her name is, or I think she goes under the name Design Mom, and she was she was uh, blogging about the fact that intentional pregnancies are, yes, the woman's the woman decided to do that, um, but unintentional pregnancies, it's 
definitely more male irresponsibility than female irresponsibility that's at play there. She has a really good, a really good argument when you think about it. <laughs> um, I'm not saying women are incapable of behaving irresponsibly, but uh, if you if you look at the definition of sexual intercourse, it's defined by male. Ejaculation. I don't know if you say these things on your show or not. You can cut this. That's a clinical term. That's okay. (laughs) Um, So it's defined by a male ejaculating. It's not defined by women's pleasure at all, um, which usually does not occur in conjunction with intercourse. So most uh, most pregnancies that are unintended are due to male irresponsibility to a greater degree than they are due to female irresponsibility. The other thing that I think is tricky in the way this is worded um, in the exceptions, it says pregnancy resulted from forcible rape, which is a legal term, and it's referring to basically, you know, guy jumps out of bushes and forcibly rapes you. <laughs> um, that's not how most rapes occur. Uh, there's usually coercion. There's often, you know, a milder form of force that's applied that, that what is the standard? We also have an issue where are women believed? Um, it, it also says that incest is another option, you know, like as far as uh, it could be an exception to the, to the no abortion rule, incest. But how many incest victims are willing to admit what happened, who the father was, and um, and to be forthright about it during the time frames that they would have to. So, again, I think that this is a situation where you have to believe women, but you also have to not compel women to you, – you can't put women on trial for it. You have to let them make the decision. Okay. Angela, I'm going to ask uh, uh, one more question and maybe a follow-up, but – Given what we just talked about, and you may not be able to answer this, but would it be better from your perspective for the church's aims to see Roe v. Wade overturned, or do you think that would be worse for the I think church? that would be worse. I think that would be worse for for everyone, really, honestly. <laughs> for for um, some of the reasons you just enumerated, but but why for the church? Let me think about that. Well, I think going back to what Peggy was saying, you know, the church can kind of sit back on this one. Roe v. Wade is not contradicted by the church's policy. The church's policy is enabled by Roe v. Wade. Um, the church can be more strict than Roe v. Wade allows for, for its church members, um, without applying that standard to people, other citizens that are not members of the church. Um, the church's policy allows for even even allows for if somebody's a convert who previously um, had an abortion that was an elective abortion, it allows them to repent and join the church. There there is an avenue for them. So, it, in my opinion, it is always better for the church's policy to be slightly more strict than the laws of the land, not have a huge gap between the two and not have the laws of the land be exactly what the church's policy is. Mm -hmm. It should be something close, but again, we should err a little bit more on whatever we believe is the right moral choice. And and as you stated, you know, even the church's policy for those who, for lack of a better word, violate the church's positions on abortion, it's, as far as discipline says, they, they they may be subject to church discipline. doesn't say they will be or should be. That's that's right, yeah. yeah. 
Angela Clayton, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. And thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. We also thank our producer, Sarah Weber. We remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in the church by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up. And we'll talk again next week on Mormonland. Land.